I gave a talk on Thursday afternoon downtown to a group of attorneys, and I named what I see to be five of the most pressing challenges in our culture at this particular time, and I want to begin by sharing those with you. The first one I'm going to call emptiness, meaninglessness, and deaths of despair. We continue to see many people in our culture who live with little meaning and purpose in their lives. Depression, suicide, addiction are all on the rise. Opioid addiction is still a problem, and we know this. The second challenge is loneliness, social isolation, and major declines in social capital. For many years now, social scientists like Robert Putnam at Harvard and others have been tracking statistics in this research. We simply do not have the kind of communities and connections that we used to have 20 or 30, 40 years ago. The third challenge, political polarization and tribalism, which leads to anger and contempt, made worse, of course, by social media. No longer do we just agree with or just disagree with our political opponents and their policies. We hold contempt and disdain for them. We have anger and resentment towards them. Fourth, overwhelming levels of fear and anxiety. More antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication is being prescribed today than ever before. Many people are simply paralyzed by fear. And fifth, the final challenge that I named was a shortage of healthy leaders who are well-balanced. And by well-balanced, I mean fair-minded, grounded, and civil. Now, I'm not sure what you would add to that list, but these are some of the challenges facing American culture right now which means that the church and Christians must acknowledge these things, not deny them, and do whatever we can to address them. And what I think we will find is that Jesus offers us answers to every single one of these challenges. But are we willing to listen? And are we willing to follow? In his gospel, John tells us a story that is not told in the other gospels. A woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law at the time was very clear. Adulterers were to be put to death by stoning. So the scribes and the Pharisees bring her to Jesus to present him with this dilemma. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery, they say. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? Well, Jesus knew exactly what they were up to. If he said yes, she should be stoned to death, he would lose the reputation that he had gained as one who was full of love, compassion, and mercy. But if he said let her go, he would be accused of teaching people that it's okay to break the law of Moses and not suffer the consequences. So what does Jesus do? He takes time to think, which is a good thing anytime we are facing a difficult decision. He leans over and he writes something down in the dirt. We don't know exactly what, some 
biblical scholars say that he was actually writing the sins of all the people who were standing around holding stones. Wouldn't that be interesting? But he doesn't respond quickly because he knows he's being trapped. But they keep questioning him. They want him to give an answer. They feel like they have him cornered. And Jesus stands up and he looks at them and he gives a brilliant response. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And then one by one, they dropped their stones and they walked away, leaving Jesus alone with the woman. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go therefore and sin no more. Jesus says, if you're perfect, if you are without sin, if you've never made a mistake, then go right ahead and stone her. But he knew that nobody could because everybody sins and falls short. Even when we try really hard not to, we still sin and fall short. The grace and the forgiveness that Jesus demonstrated to this woman is the same grace and the same forgiveness that God shows to all of us in our own lives. Some of you remember a uh, football player named Steve McNair. He played for many years as a quarterback for the Tennessee Titans. And many of you remember that about 10 and a half years ago, his life came to a tragic end on July the 4th, 2009 after he'd only been retired from the NFL for just over a year. He was at a downtown condo with his girlfriend who shot him and then took her own life. It was a murder-suicide that shocked the sports world and certainly the Nashville community. Well, I remember that, and I remember watching McNair's funeral on TV. It was on TV. It was held in Mount Zion, Baptist Church here in Nashville, and Bishop Joseph Walker, who is the pastor there, gave an address, and he actually talked about this passage from John 8. And he, he gave this eulogy, but what Bishop Walker did was he addressed what he called the big elephant in the room. And he articulated what everybody was thinking that day. Steve McNair a hero, a sports legend, a great philanthropist, a role model, a famous son of Nashville, was killed as the result of an affair that he was having with a 20-year-old woman, leaving behind a wife and four sons and many friends and millions of fans. Bishop Walker referred to this story of Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery, and he talked about how the religious leaders were saying that she should be stoned to death for her actions in accordance with the law. But Jesus shocks them all. And so what Walker did that day was he stood in front of the church, right in front of McNair's casket, and he said, I have come to declare a stone-dropping service. He said, next time you think about writing about Steve McNair, drop your stone." Next time you think about texting somebody about him, drop your stone. 
Next time you decide you want to get on Twitter and tweet about it, drop your stone. See, Steve McNair had made some really bad decisions in his personal life that were irresponsible, and, and it disappointed many people, especially his family, and ultimately it costed him his life. But I do think, and I agree with Bishop Walker, that it's time for many people in our culture and in the Christian faith to do a better job of dropping their stones, practicing forgiveness and mercy and compassion. Because we all sin. We all need forgiveness. We all need new beginnings. And Jesus Christ offers that to us, and he calls us to offer it to each other. So how do we do this? How are we to live our lives? I started off by naming five really big challenges that I see in our culture right now. Emptiness, meaninglessness, and deaths of despair. Loneliness, polarization and tribalism that lead to anger and contempt. Overwhelming levels of fear and anxiety. A shortage of healthy leaders who are balanced and, and, and fair. It's not enough to just acknowledge the problems and the challenges that we see in our world. We have to find ways to address them because these challenges are real. Arthur Brooks gave a very timely message at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington the day after the impeachment trial ended. With the president there, the speaker of the house there, many other congressmen and senators there, he drew on the words of Jesus who said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And in the speech he gave three pieces of advice. First he said, ask God to give you the strength to do this hard work that we call loving our enemies. And this will require going against your own human nature. Secondly, he said, make a commitment to someone else to reject contempt. You see, contempt has become the problem in our culture. Not disagreement, not different ideas, not different policies, not, not different backgrounds, but contempt and anger. And so Brooks said that rejecting contempt doesn't look like just setting aside disagreement, but rather Disagreement is good. In fact, it's what makes this country great. The competition of ideas, that's the part of democracy. But he called on politicians to disagree without contempt. Ask someone to hold you accountable. And then third, he said, go out looking for contempt and turn it on its head. This is how we will change the country, Brooks explained. This is how we can change the world. Think like a missionary. Go out looking for opportunities to show love to people with whom you disagree and where you would normally show contempt. Do something different. He says if you can't find contempt, then you probably need a wider circle of friends because that means you might just be in an echo chamber 
But contempt is the problem. And it's rampant. We have to find a way to deal with this in our culture. And I think that the words of the Apostle Paul in many of his epistles, but especially in Ephesians chapter 4, are worth lifting up. What does Paul say? First, he says this, putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors. Tell the truth. One of the kindest things that we can do in life is simply tell the truth. Seek the truth, not just some of the time, not just when it's convenient, but all of the time. It also means not perpetuating gossip that may or may not be true. People will make things up and then pass them along as though it is the truth. And if it's not the truth, then it can do a lot of damage to somebody's reputation. Jesus says later in John 8, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If we know Christ, then we know the truth and the truth will make us free. Tell the truth, seek the truth, live the truth. Secondly, Paul says, don't act out in anger. Whenever we're angry, we usually say and do things that we regret, things that we want to take back. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul is acknowledging that we will all experience anger in life. It's human. It's normal. And some struggle with it more than others, but we should not let our anger drive us to do or to say something that we will regret. Andy Stanley has a, a great little book called Enemies of the Heart. I'd recommend it to you, but in the book he talks about four negative emotions that often control us. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. And when it comes to anger, he says, the root of anger is the perception that something has been taken. Something is owed to you. And now a debt-to-debtor relationship has been established. So when we get angry in life, when we don't get the things that we want or we don't get the things that we deserve, that's when we get angry. But we have to find a way to deal with it. Stanley says, show me an angry person, and I will show you a hurt person. And that person is hurting because something has been taken. Something or someone owes them something. If nothing else, maybe just an apology. Think about it. We get mad in life when we don't get what we want. But nobody ever said that life was fair, and nobody ever said that we should always get everything that we want. We know that we don't. Third, Paul says we must intentionally work to build other people up. Compliment them, encourage them, praise them. There are enough people in this world who tear others down all the time. And so what we need in our culture, and in our families, and in our churches, and in our our places of work, we need more people who build others up. Paul says, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. 
Do you remember the book that uh, psychologist Gary Chapman wrote called The Five Love Languages? I'm sure many of you have either read it or you've heard about it. If you've been married in the past uh, 10 years, you were probably asked to read it as a part of uh, premarital counseling. So Gary Chapman says there are five basic ways that we show love to each other. Quality time, physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, and gifts, gifts that we give. He says these are the ways that we show love to each other, not just in romantic relationships, but in all of our relationships in life. And it takes effort and intentionality. But we need more words of affirmation in this world. We need more encouragement in this world. We need more hope and positivity in this world. There's not enough. Lastly, a big answer to our world's challenges is found in forgiveness. You know, I, I look back over sermons and I, and I find that I, I preach and talk about forgiveness a lot. And maybe it's just a reminder to myself that I need to practice forgiveness is why it always comes up. But the reality is forgiveness is a part of the Christian tradition. It's a part of what Jesus taught and commanded and what Jesus lived. Paul says this in Ephesians, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. I preach on forgiveness not because it's easy, but because I am convinced that life will be miserable without it. If we can't let go of the past, if we can't let go of the hurt, if we can't move past the grudge that we hold, life can only be lived in the present. We can't change the past, but we can forgive and we can let go. It's really hard, I think, to be kind to somebody if you can't stop thinking about something that they did to you in the past. Now, I'm not saying that everything that has been done to us in the past is excusable. Not at all. But who wants to live a life where past mistakes define your future? David Brooks wrote an interesting op-ed last year sometime in the spring, I think, he talked about just different kinds of behavior, human behavior. So he said, when we stereotype and abuse and impugn motives and lie about each other, we've ripped the social fabric and encouraged more ugliness. But when we love across boundaries and we listen patiently and we see deeply and we make somebody else feel known, then we've woven it and we've reinforced a concept of generosity. Jesus didn't tell the woman who was caught in adultery that her sin was okay, that she had done nothing wrong. She knew it was wrong. But what he did show her was grace and mercy. And then he said, now go, go. And sin no more. And what I think he's challenging all of us to do is to drop our stones, to judge less, and to go and give and bring new beginnings to other people. Because chances are 
there's times in our lives when we want new beginnings as well. Amen.